I'm very pleased to introduce two expert speakers who are with me this morning from their respective houses. We've got um, Rob Millard, who is at Cambridge Strategy Group, and Rob is a business and strategy consultant who's been advising professional services for um, in excess of 20 years, from sort of the small boutiques to the big, large multinationals. So he's got a wealth of experience and has seen situations like this multiple times in different types of um, firms so it's well placed to offer us his expertise and I've also got Zulom Begum who is one of my partners at CM Murray she specializes in non-contentious partnership law so her areas of particular expertise are around governance structuring M&A partnership agreement drafting and those sorts of issues so I'm very pleased to have them both with us this morning so as you will all be very well aware, the COVID-19 crisis has brought us some unprecedented challenges. So we started off at the beginning of March trying to grapple with technology and working from home and how we would manage that. And we've quickly progressed and become pretty adept at working from home, and um, particularly in our sectors. We've been very fortunate that we can pretty much have our entire workforces working remotely, which makes us very lucky compared to others. And so once we've overcome that challenge, we've realized that there is in fact a bigger and potentially longer term challenge ahead, which relates to the wider economy and the economic circumstances in which we now find ourselves. And in some respects, this is quite a similar challenge to those which many of you will have seen before in 2008 to 2013, and for some of you, earlier recessions. But in other contexts, it's quite different because we don't know how long it will last. Um, and we didn't know how long they would last either, but it may be quite short term, which would be different to those previous challenges we've experienced. But we just don't know what that period's gonna look like when we're out of this acute lockdown phase and what the world will look like and how different that might be and how we will be impacted by way of, for example, international travel um, and how we might do business in the future and whether people will be willing to go back to offices and particularly in London, how people might feel about getting on public transport. So we have to think about what those things will do and how they might impact our businesses and our workforces. I want to flag, first of all, just what we're going to cover this morning, and then I'll pass over to Rob and Zulon initially to take us through some of the key financial aspects. So initially this morning, we're going to look at managing finances and really what you can look at from a strategic perspective to help put your business in the best position possible to try and weather this downturn. We're then going to look at the use of technology and outsourcing and how that might be able to help us all get through this period and potentially the future and how we might come out of this stronger than before. And then we're going to look at management of people and partners and staff and how we might best mitigate the risks in that area and also some creative things that we might want to think about to help us manage our businesses through this time. So, I'm going to kick off by really moving to the finances. So it's always a good place to start. Cash is king, as we know. And so with that in mind, it probably makes sense to kick off on a Monday morning at five past nine to talk about money. Most of you will probably be well used to doing this over the last few weeks. It's probably been top of your agendas and your own internal meetings. And I'm sure that has been replicated across the globe. And, you know, we all know the basics about finances and professional services, but what would be good to explore this morning and what Zulon and Rob are going to talk about in a moment is just how we might think about financial issues and the powers that we might need to implement certain decisions and what we might look at for the future when we're maybe out of this acute phase to better protect our businesses. So I'm going to hand over to Zulon first of all to just take us through some of the basics about what law firms need to be thinking about and what powers they might need and then we'll turn to Rob to look at a more strategic angle on that. Zulon. Thank you Sarah. I, I think, as, as Sarah said, these are unprecedented times, and I think that word's probably been overused um, in recent weeks and months. Um, but I really can't find an alternative word to it. It really is unprecedented. Um, and all businesses, not just professional firms, will be um, grappling with all the financial issues that will come out of this. But I think there are some particular challenges for professional firms and law firms in that, in that the way we operate um, often on quite a thinly capitalised balance sheet. There is often quite a fragile equilibrium within the money that comes into the business in terms of um, invoices being paid by clients um, against what money, the money that goes out in terms of fixed overheads, um, wage costs, rent, um, PI insurance, 
and also partner drawings. Um, how delicate that balance is will differ from firm to firm, depending on the type of business that you have. Some firms are more capital intensive because, you know, for example, um, they operate on a no-win fee basis, um, so they don't get paid until the conclusion of a matter. And it also, of course, depends largely on how prudently you've managed your um, finances to date and whether you are um, in, in good shape to actually weather this storm. But there are, of course, uh, you know, all firms, whether, whether they were already in good shape or not, will be taking quite drastic measures to overcome some of the cash issues that are being presented by the current crisis. Um, so one of the, I will just briefly mention why, you know, there are particularly unique challenges for professional firms. So one of the reasons are um, for being thinly capitalised is because um, a lot of professional firms and law firms are still partnerships and LLPs um, for many good reasons. But this does mean that they often operate on a full distribution model, um, which means that partners are effectively paid drawings on account of profit during the course of the financial year as monthly drawings. And the remainder of the profit is allocated to them or distributed to them not long after the finalisation of the accounts for that year. So um, firms don't necessarily keep on um, retain profits um, and build up a, a, a cash buffer for a rainy day. Um, and that, that is partly due to the way partnerships and LLPs are taxed. So partnership and LLPs are taxed transparent vehicles, meaning the, the profits of the firm are taxed in the hands of the partners rather than at the entity level. Um, and it means partners will pay tax on those profits, whether or not those profits are actually distributed to them. So if a firm actually decided to retain any profits in the business, the partners would effectively suffer a dry tax charge. They'd have to pay tax on those profits, even though they have received them in their hands. And this is why a lot of firms operate on that full distribution model. So partners receive the profits that they, they're going to be taxed on in that financial, financial year. So these, these issues are obviously not very helpful in this current environment when, as, as Sarah said, cash is king more than ever. Um, there are, of course, some financial measures and tax measures that the government has implemented to help, help professional firms as well as businesses in general. Um, particular things to note in terms of those measures are, of course, the deferral of self-employment tax due um, in July 2020. Um, so this is particularly useful for firms that reserve for partners tax. Um, so that big chunk of money that needs to go out in July is now deferred until January and that will give firms uh, a six month um, cash flow buffer in, in, in those terms. For firms that don't already, already reserve for partners tax, it might be something they want to do because um, a lot of firms tend to use partners tax reserves as, um, as part of their working capital. Um, the other thing to note in terms of the government measures are the VAT um, deferral. Um, so partner, firms can opt to defer VAT to March 2021. And again, that's a very helpful cash buffer um, to help firms in the medium and short and long term. There are, of course, <laughs> there is also issues around um, the various loan schemes, um, whether those are actually in, in practice accessible, but in theory they are, they are available to many firms. Um, but of course, it's been quite well um, documented in the press about the difficulties of getting hold of those funds. Um, while all of these government measures are quite helpful and useful in the short and medium term, of course, firms cannot rely on any of those or all of those together. Um, to get them through this crisis and, um, and we've already seen many firms taking quite drastic measures to conserve cash in the business. Now I'm going to hand over to Rob to talk about what some of those uh, measures are um, and um, which are, have been implemented or firms should be thinking about implementing and then I'll talk later on a bit about some of the constitutional issues about implementing those measures. Thanks, Zulon. Yeah, Rob, you've seen this before, so please share some of your thoughts. No need to emphasize too much that I've seen this before. <laughs> it shows my age. <laughs> no, actually, it's your experience and expertise, I would say. But 
but yeah, so, uh, but uh, it's in, in ways this feels like 2008, 2009, but it's very different. It's, uh, and and, and we, we shouldn't make the mistake of, of drawing too much of a parallel with them because uh, this was, well, uh, the, the word unprecedented is good. Uh, this was self-imposed. Uh, this, this was not a recession which came about because of economic pressures in the market. So uh, how long it's going to last and how bad it's going to be depends on who you listen to. I was just looking at Ian Stewart's, uh, he's the chief economist from Deloitte's, his email this morning and they, Deloitte still is holding to uh, a short, sharp, uh, contraction in in this quarter, but in the next quarter, a, a rebound of up to six percent, and and uh, so a, a far more modest impact than some people are talking about. So uh, I, I think having the right information is really important. What's also different to two thousand and nine uh, was that firms had a lot more uh, surplus people back then, so uh, wins could be achieved with with uh, with headcount reductions, and indeed uh, they were quite brutally imposed. We are seeing um, headcount reductions now too, but more in the case, uh, more like uh, furloughs and and layoffs of only of people where people have thought very carefully about whether this person is going to be required again uh, in a few months when we come out of this. But I, I think um, before I get onto the specifics, uh, I'm, what I'm seeing is three scenarios uh, that, that firms are applying in terms of how they're thinking about cash, both now and and in the medium term. And the first is indeed a circle of wagons. Uh, we're in deep trouble. Uh, we need to make sure that we don't spend a single cent that we uh, can avoid spending, and we need to to, to cut down on everything. Uh, the, the danger with that is that it it may hamper one's ability to 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 come out of the recession strongly. Uh, but on the other hand, if uh, th that is the situation, that is the situation, and you just have to deal with the strategic implications later. Uh, the second is a, a sort of a balance between, yes, we have to be more prudent now, but also what is this going to look like in a few months' time? Um, so we are seeing um, deferring investments that, that can be deferred, but also uh, looking at what, uh, and technology uh, springs to mind immediately here, uh, looking at what kind of technologies can be implemented in the short term uh, that would in drive efficiency now but also in the medium term as we come out of this and also uh, looking at uh, work practices like uh, partners hogging work it's it's becoming more pronounced even uh, with people working from home because you don't have the face-to-face -face interactions that one has in the office and uh, that intersects with something I was told by, by, by the head of, of legal operations at a very prominent business recently. Uh, he was quite angry uh, that he said that um, he'd had, he had yet to have a meaningful discussion, a meaningful approach from any of his lawyers about what was going on in his life and, and, and in his work and what his challenges were. And he was quite scathing about the, uh, the string of emails about COVID and invitations to webinars, uh, rather than partners picking up the phone. And if partners are hogging all the work, you can't expect associates to do the, 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 the hand-holding with clients that is even more important uh, under the current circumstances. And then the third scenario is the, uh, what are we going to do to use this crisis to build our firm out in strategically uh, the way that we would like it to be? Uh, I got an email from the managing partner of a, of a firm yesterday where they said, in fact, March, their March has been the best March they've ever had. Uh, they are sitting on three months reserves in cash, and they're absolutely looking at how they might use this opportunity to build out their firm and win market share and, 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 and just grow. So the, 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 the two factors that really drive the decision are how much money have you got? Uh, what are your, the, the, the financial pressures? And uh, the, the second one is, what is your view of the future? Um, beyond that, it's, I mean, we don't need to talk about collecting receivables and reducing expenses. I'm sure firms are all over that. Zulon mentioned litigation funding. I think that's a, 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 an area that some firms haven't yet exploited. And of course, the direct benefit is to clients, but it does also mean that, um, that, that lawyer, lawyer bills can get paid quicker. Um, Ideally, one should have three, three to six months worth of reserves, but reserves don't mean necessarily cash in the bank. 
So it may mean uh, applying for a line of credit, even if you don't need it right now, uh, maybe you're not even using it at all, but at least you've got it if you do need it. Part of that is um, making sure that the partners are in a, in, 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 in a position to be able to satisfy a cash call should you need to call on them to, to, to capitalize the business. Uh, so they, they, one has to look at reserves in a holistic way. But um, so that intersection between reserves and cash management in the short term and uh, what the medium to long term looks like is crucial. One has to, one has to balance it. And Rob, I've heard mixed reports from firms and in fact others in industry about getting lines of credit at the moment in terms of the bank's reactions. Could you share any of your experience over the last month in that area in case some of the people on the call are thinking about that or going through that process? Yes, certainly. Uh, and again, out of the mouth of a, a managing partner who I won't mention, uh, I won't identify, but a, 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 a relatively small UK firm. Uh, they went to the bank uh, as they had before and uh, on a number of occasions to discuss short-term needs and uh, the bank asked for a lot more information this time um, and they asked for documentation and they wanted to be satisfied themselves that contingency planning was solid and that the assumptions on which the contingency planning was based uh, were solid. So, um, so that, is that the sort of thing you would be suggesting, even if people don't think they're maybe going to need it for a couple of months, they get planning now and collate that information? Yes. Uh, well, they should be doing that anyway, because they should be modeling the various scenarios that could play out in their businesses, you know, with, with reduced revenues or increased revenues. Yeah. Hopefully. Um, and in terms of the strategic piece, you mentioned that, um, you know, some firms will be in a position to think about how they might build strategically out. Um, have you got any um, experiences that you can share or examples that you could give us on that? Because I know a number of people will be thinking, well, how can I build out my strategy when my clients are no longer uh, operating? Because maybe, you know, they are in sectors who've had to furlough all their staff and maybe can't actually get to work. And um, what might you be able to share with us about that? There's an immediate term uh, answer to that. And then there's also the more medium term. And in the medium term, it all has to be about talking to clients. And I worry about law firms not talking to their clients enough and about the right things. Perhaps there are discussions that can be held and litigation funding springs to mind. Uh, immediately because so often uh, companies sit on on, on claims uh, until because they can't afford the, the, the legal fees frankly uh, and, and they might sit on them until um, they, they hope things will improve and uh, and maybe only institute a claim once the six-year period is, is nearly up um, so, so uh, Apart from all the legal issues around that, that obviously has cash flow implications. And, and, and so just advising them on what their options are there, especially as, as litigation funding isn't only just around single big matters now, but, but funders are prepared to look at portfolios. Or, 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 <coughs> so yeah, I think lawyers need to be more creative in, in, uh, about what, what they could do under these current circumstances right now to help clients. Yeah, yeah. Funding litigation funding is certainly something that we've seen change a lot in the last five or so years, um, and no doubt change a lot in the next. Um, I should add just now that um, we are, as advertised, um, very happy to take questions, and I um, haven't seen any come up. But if anyone has questions, just pop them in the chat, and we will come to them. Um, if we get them throughout the session and they link into what we're talking about, I'll take them immediately, um, or after that sort of small section. Otherwise, we can round up. The questions at the end um, and I know we had a couple of questions in advance so we'll pick those up at the end as well um, so Zulon what what will firms be thinking about so let's say they've uh, spoken to someone like Rob and they've got a lot of ideas that they want to maybe do certain things and they, some of those things might even be quite basic like holding on to distributions or changing the way they pay their partners what things should firms need to look at in their, for example, LLP documents or governance documents to enable them to implement things that they might want to do? So, um, as you both said, um, so the key things that um, firms are certainly looking at doing or have done is um, reducing partner drawings or deferring them for a period, even reducing fixed profit shares and also increasing capital contributions from partners. 
Now, all of those types of actions um, normally require some process or decision to be made in accordance with the firm's partnership or LLP agreement. So it's quite important for senior management in firms to have a look very carefully at what, um, what is required in your, under your constitutional documents. Um, as you know, not following the proper process under that can lead to um, potential challenges down the line from partners. Now, some of those decisions in terms of deferring drawings, for example, um, might be already delegated in your partnership or LLP agreement to senior management in the firms, in which case the process is slightly more streamlined and quicker to implement, which is quite helpful in the situations when we're in a very fast moving situation and firms need to take actions very quickly. Um, where decisions are delegated to senior management, those decisions make, decision makers must of course act rationally and in good faith when taking those decisions. And I would suggest that um, the, the decisions are properly documented. Um, and even if it might not be strictly required under the partnership agreement in this current environment, I think all partners in the firm um, need to be behind the decisions made by senior management. Um, so senior management um, may find it helpful to actually have some type of, or, you know, some form of consultation with partners before taking those types of actions which would drastically in some cases reduce um, the financial, the financial um, rights of some partners. Um, this will ensure that you know, partners are brought along in the process um, and um, increased transparency obviously increases trust. And that's very important in an environment like this um, where there's a lot of uncertainty. And Dylan, is there anything from a, an appreciate, um, we're not regulatory specialists in CMRE, and we always work with experts in that field, but is there anything from a regulatory perspective that you would mention, um, which might, you know, if you have a, an issue getting partners on board, obviously we all have regulatory duties, um, whether we're, um, you know, managing the firm or not, um, is there anything there that, that would assist um, management of a firm to encourage people to get on the same page? Yeah, well, um, obviously all partners in firms, whether the part they're a partnership or an LLP, they have a duty of good faith to act in the best interest of the firm. So that's a very important duty and that will come into play when obviously thinking about decisions involving the financial future of the firm and, and its stability. Um, firms, uh, partners, of, individual partners of um, law firms um, and possibly also other regulated firms will be under professional obligations as well. So for example, law in law firms are required under the um, SRA rules to ensure that their firm is financially viable. Uh, and that obligation also applies to managers of law firms. Now all partners and LLP members are treated as managers. And that includes rank and file partners, in, including lead, senior leadership of the firm. So all of the partners in, in the law firm have the obligation that the obligation to ensure that their firm is financially stable and viable and if it's not that they um, they uh, manage the orderly wind down of their firm uh, so that it's probably useful to remind partners of their both their fiduciary obligations and their regulatory obligations in this respect the other thing that part individual partners should also be aware of um, is their potential liabilities on insolvency now for general partnerships, um, this will be acutely on the minds of general partners um, because as most people know, gen um, partners in general partnerships have joint and several liability for the debts and obligations of the firm. Um, for LLP members, it's, it's often um, misconstrued slightly in terms of the liability of individual partners on insolvency. Um, and some partners, rank and file partners, might not realise that they are actually, um, e even though they have um, uh, limited liability in some respects, it's not complete. So, for example, if a firm did become insolvent, um, uh, unfortunately due to this situation, then uh, partners would be at risk of losing their capital, they'd be at risk of losing any of their reserves in the business, so any tax reserves that they have that's sitting on the, on the firm's balance sheet. Um, they'd also be uh, liable to pay back any drawings made on account of profits, 
as well as um, potentially being on the hook for clawback under insolvency and wrongful, wrongful trading um, legislation. And that could be clawback of their distributions up to two years prior to the um, onset of insolvency. So when you combine all of those duties and potential liabilities together, you'd think that partners would hopefully act very rationally when making these very crucial decisions at, at this important time. Yeah, sobering stuff. And just before we move on from finances, one final point is a number of firms, and actually we have had a query about this as well from a firm who have this situation. A number of firms have got obligations to former partners, um, often by way of annuities, um, where they are obliged to pay out over a number of years uh, part of their profits to former partners who have retired from the firm. And a number of those firms will be thinking, is there a way that we can hold on to that money um, and delay the payments of those annuities? Um, I mean, I'd quite like to ask both of you if you've got any thoughts about that, but Zulon, first of all, from a technical perspective, can they hold on to that? Um, is that possible? Well, I, th I think it's really a matter of um, So it will really depend on what um, that individual partner's retirement deed says as well as potentially also what the firm's LLP or partnership agreement says. Um, if, a, if the retirement deed says, um, has an absolute obligation of the firm to pay out um, those profits within a certain period, regardless of, not, regardless of whether the firm has the money to pay it, then unfortunately it will be um, uh, the obligation for the firm to comply with that. Uh, unless, of course, it can renegotiate with that individual partner. Now, if, if the retirement deed itself says that um, profits will be paid out at the same time as continuing partners receive their profits, then that's quite helpful from the firm's perspective. Because if the firm has the power under the, their partnership agreement or LLP agreement to actually defer payments to continuing partners, that would have a knock-on effect on, on the rights of the partners who have retired because they've agreed to be paid out at the same time as continuing partners. Yeah, and, and suppose that's something to bear in mind if you're, any partners are retiring at the moment and you're doing that sort of deal for someone is think about that going forward. Like, when do you want to pay them out? Put everyone on a par is often easier. Rob, is anything, have you come across any um, kind of, uh, tips on that side, you know, if people have to go and talk to their retired partners or have to try and hold that money in, have you got anything that you've seen work effectively? Not with retired partners directly, but what I suspect this crisis is going to do is it's going to encourage a lot of older lawyers to want to retire. I haven't had got time to, you know, for this side. All, all, and, and that is going to raise issues because the, 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 uh, the ability of firms over the next year or two to, um, to, to pay the, the quite, in, in some cases, quite generous retirement uh, pay, uh, annuities that they have with, with retired partners may be under, under stress. Uh, it may also be that firms want to um, merge their way out of uh, out of the, the the pressures that they'll be under, and sometimes that 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 can be a very sound strategic move as well. It's not just a, a distressed um, a, a distressed uh, strategy. Uh, the, the, the ability to to merge might be hampered by the agreements that they have with partners that have retired or are in the process of retiring. Yeah, so, we've seen that before, haven't we? I think especially where it's a change from, from a founding generation to the next generation, that's yeah. perhaps the most difficult situation, of, of the most dangerous situation for any law firm in, the, in its life cycle is that transition. Yeah, and that's a, a whole session in itself, which we might yeah. come on to in another, in another Zoom. Um, so moving on then from the finances, um, I mean, I just want to say, briefly um, and the, we have another podcast on this topic so I'm not going to go into any detail but obviously the other financial piece is the money that you owe to your staff um, and the wage bill effectively and there are obviously ways that we can minimize the impact of that as well and the government have obviously got in place the furlough scheme which um, changes every week and the um, chancellor likes to put out an announcement every Friday night to keep employment lawyers busy over the weekends which 
starting to get a little bit tedious. Um, so there's that, um, but there's also the existing remedies that we had in place to manage the uh, wage cost of staff, which relate to, for example, shortened weeks, shortened hours, um, potential redundancies, although I would hope that the furlough scheme would avoid that to, to an extent. Um, Rob obviously mentioned that, um, you know, what our firms will be looking to do is try and predict what they will need by way of resources at the end of this process. But of course, that's very, very difficult. And so I think what we've seen is a number of firms, rather than make drastic decisions, take that slightly lesser drastic decision of furloughing staff to allow them the option of either bringing them back into the business or unfortunately if that's not going to be possible at least them looking at a redundancy process months down the line which would obviously be better for the staff but the you know the main benefit of the furlough scheme is that it will enable businesses to maintain staff and therefore maintain the talent pool and the um, staff who know about the business which is really what you're going to want when you're building back up after this um, but as I say I'm not going to go into detail about that scheme on this session um, so moving on, um, we have seen, I think, uh, to varying degrees of people having to change the way they approach work with regard to technology and other more novel ways of working. Some firms were almost all remote before we started this and they have weathered this very well um, and they are sort of got those working practices down um, to perfection. Other firms took a lot longer to shift their workforces out of the physical building. And some firms still haven't been able to shift all of their sectors and sections within their workforce to full remote working. Um, so technology has obviously helped us enormously in relation to how we as a sector have been able to remote work much better than a lot of other sectors. And for that, we are very, very fortunate. Um, but Rob, um, what would you say, you know, remote working obviously has its pros and cons. It's allowed us to keep working, but there are pitfalls and things we need to watch out for. Um, and a lot of people are concerned about productivity and monitoring and supervision. Um, what have you seen work and what, what do you think the dangers of remote working are? Well, I, I think it's helped to look, helpful to look at some <laughs> of the other professions. If you look at the, the premium uh, consultancy firms, for instance, it's a very bad thing to be in the office because that means you've got no work. If, you, if you've got work, then you're out with a client. And I, I think what firms are beginning to think about now is how do we make remote working as productive as in-office working? And, uh, and, and certainly the, the remote working tools like, uh, like the one we're using now or like Teams or uh, the, the various other um uh, collaborative tools are, are, are they've almost taken a five-year leap into the future i mean i, I read somewhere recently that that zoom uh, has gone up from 10 million subscribers to 200 million subscribers in, in a matter of weeks i wish i had shares in them uh, so so the firms have have got got that under control really quickly even firms that were lagging are, are, are up to speed largely now in terms of being able to use these tools but they're still co-working tools it's not really about collaboration and what, what's really interesting is to google where video conference is going uh, in terms of, of virtual reality enabled uh, uh, video conferencing and some of the the, the hologram tools of Microsoft, I, I kid you not, holograms that Microsoft is working on right now. A, a, a quick Google search will bring up some YouTube videos that show what I'm talking about. And uh, the ability that firms will have, perhaps in as soon as, as quickly as a year from now, to be able to collaborate in ways that uh, simply would have been unheard of a year ago. Uh, so, so if we're in 2025, so far as video conferencing is concerned, some of our practices are still in 2020, if not in 2010. And I think what we're going to see in uh, just in a few weeks, if, once this lockdown ends and, for, and people start returning to the offices, the fault lines are going to start opening in terms of people's expectations that were uh, uh, in terms of remote working, but also in terms of collaboration and not just the people within the firm, clients as well. Clients under pressure are going to be a, uh, a lot less tolerant about. Um, inefficient practices, which is going to drive technology. Uh, and, and people are, are not going to want to stand on, on, on crowded tubes and, uh, and, and crowded trains. They're going to be fearful. I think the fear is going to take a long time to dissipate, especially if the pandemic carries on uh, in the background into next year. So we're going to see the, these fault lines opening up, and I think it's going to be really important for law firm leaders to keep an eye on 
those, those fault lines and have discussions about remote working, perhaps even partner compensation and some of the other issues that come up from time to time are going to be triggered again by this change in, in the way that we experience our, our work. Yeah, and I think um, one of the issues that we've, I think, been discussing um, that's come up as a concern from law firms is because we are probably under more financial pressure than normal, and because unlike a lot of industries, we are literally measured on, in a lot of cases, the time that we work, it concerns about productivity and how we best measure that and monitor that when we're not physically anywhere near the people that we work with. Um, and what have you seen firms doing to try and best manage that concern? Well, I mean, the obvious first step is to move your, product, your, your productivity and your performance measures from production, i.e. billable hours, to, to revenue would be a good start, and many firms have done that, at least to a degree. The difficulty is that the in-office, face-to-face, uh, tournament of lawyers model is so heavily predicated on billable hours that it's very difficult to break. Uh, to, to break, and by break, I mean replace with something better, something better this may be the, 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 the thing that we have been waiting for uh, that creates an opportunity for something that isn't predicated on shoveling hours out of the door. Mm, yeah, the push that we need to tell. Yeah. And, and Zulon, what about, um, I mean, I, I know putting my employment lawyer head on, um, when I think about remote working, I think about areas of risk such as well-being of staff and, and isolation of, of staff, particularly now when, you know, you might have a remote workforce under normal circumstances who can go out in the evenings and still do networking events and socialise with their friends and see their family. But if you have remote workers at the moment who are actual solo workers, they are going to experience different challenges to people who say are living in a, in a household. Um, so I think there's a well-being concern that I would have from that perspective, um, making sure that people, you know, are monitored, and I don't mean that in the sense of, you know, checking their IT usage, et cetera, but, you know, making sure that you have soft monitoring of people in terms of their well-being, anxiety, and stress. Um, but also there's the practical health and safety issues that I'd be thinking about around people um, not having appropriate setups. And, you know, most people, at the moment, uh, you know, majority of people still worked in an office where someone came around to did a desk assessment when they started. And there is that concern around health and safety issues. But beyond that, um, there is the other concern about the supervision requirements. And obviously, as um, a sector, which is also, as we mentioned, regulated, we are required to supervise the lawyers that are working for us in our businesses. And, you know, do you have any um, tips that you can share about how you might think about supervising um, lawyers more closely when they are remote working when it was really easy when they sat at the desk immediately opposite you in your pod yeah so regulatory obligations um, the SRA have been very quick to stress will still apply um, to all firms and all lawyers um, uh, and uh, the SRA have put out um, a guidance stating that firms have to have to take all steps reasonable to ensure that they're complying and one of those obligations of, is of course to ensure that um, the partners and the employees working in the firm are competent and have the relevant skills and their professional skills are up to date so there's an issue about training and then of course to the firm to have an effective system in place to supervise their lawyers uh, on client matters so in terms of training and um, updating skills etc i think Again, as Rob says, um, lawyers and also training firms have, have moved very quickly to online platforms um, to ensure that people are able to attend um, training courses, and webinars, all those kind of things. Um, I know there's a particular issue around trainees um, and the SRA have said that they will consider um, PSC provide professional skills course providers are uh, moving online um, so that's a definite poss possibility so that trainees can continue to um, get the relevant um, PSC uh, credits so they can qualify this year in terms of supervision um, so I, I guess the real kind of practical challenge is not having a trainee or a junior lawyer with you there to learn biosmosis um, to bounce off ideas um, to effect a supervising person. So it, it's really a matter of adapting to a new way of working. So picking up the phone, 
going on Zoom, going on Teams to have that face-to-face -face interaction with junior lawyers and trainees to ensure that they, you know, they understand um, supervision issues and to, 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 to do with the client matters that they're working with. I think, um, as Rob said, in terms of technology, we are all having to manage this um, and we, we have to kind of grapple with the new ways of working. Um, thankfully, the younger generation are probably more, more kind of um, used to kind of adapting in this way. It's, it's people like me probably to adapt a bit more, but it's all doable. Um, and there is technology out there for us to enable, enable, to enable us to do it. Um, as well as doing that in a way that com it complies with our regulatory obligations. Now, the SRA have said um, in terms of compliance that they will take a more pragmatic view of how, how that is achieved, given the current situation. Um, uh, but they have said, again, we have to do everything that um, possible to um, comply. So in terms of supervision, maintaining confidentiality, all those things I would suggest that firms kind of dust off any policies they have, so remote working policies, for example, ensure that those are up to date and take into account the fact that most of the workforce is now working from home and how they maintain supervision and confidentiality in those situations. Because um, if, if things were to go wrong, um, the SRE will be looking at what the firms did to ensure they were complying. Yeah, and I think the other thing I would add on that is around um, touching on what you say about remote working and confidentiality, but also around sort of data security, um, because obviously we've got our regulatory duties in terms of confidentiality, but we've also got our data protection duties in terms of confidentiality of, of any personal data we hold about clients, but also about um, people we work with. So there will be people in your firms who hold uh, all the data about, say, the health issues related to your employees and partners. And that's also data that needs to be adequately protected. Um, and just because we are at home does not mean that we are um, absolved of those responsibilities. Um, and um, the penalties are potentially significant. So it's another thing that we all need to just think about. Um, and I think the other thing to think about, you know, in, in discussions that some of us have had with other lawyers when we've done sort of information sharing, but also with clients, um, it, it becomes apparent that not everyone has necessarily put themselves in the position of other people so it's all very well um for someone to be thinking well you know this is how it works in my house and you know i've got uh, an office and a safe and you know a vault where i can put my client files but you know we will have people in our firms who have confidential information and maybe have physical files that they've had to take home who live in you know fairly crowded shared, shared flats and we've got to think about how it works for everybody and you know do sort of risk assessment and risk analysis on each different type of situation so that we can try and put in place measures which are not so onerous that they become either unaffordable or impractical for everybody but that they do adequately protect what we need to protect. Um, and sort of sticking with that theme of the workforce and um, the final thing we want to just talk about this morning is around what you might be thinking about doing in terms of um, optimising the partnership and the wider workforce of the employees that you have in the business um, and both thinking about the sort of practical arrangements that you might want to put in place both for partners and employees um, and also thinking about some of the legal risks in implementing any of those changes. Um, so I think some of the things that we've seen work effectively and people have been thinking about implementing over the last month or so um, are around, and, and this is mainly for employees, mainly because most partners are, you know, they may be taking cuts on drawings or cuts on profit share, but they are um, not taking any cuts to their actual working hours because now more than ever, um, there's a, a lot to be done in terms of, as we've mentioned, contingency planning and uh, business planning, but also in terms of, um, you know connecting with clients as Rob mentioned um, and also trying to sort of maximize the amount of work that we can do but for employees if you have seen drops in capacity um, you know it, fee earners and support staff and business services in particular have been quite widely affected um, then there are things that you can think about so the, as I mentioned before there's drastic measures such as redundancy um, and for partners that would be compulsory retirement where you actually sort of exit people from the business but as I mentioned, in fact, that's not your optimum situation right now, because this is hopefully shorter term in terms of the acute phase than a lot of other things that we might have experienced in the past. 
And let's say we are able to go back to an office environment in two, three months time fully. Let's hope some of us can get back in on a more, say, rotated basis sooner than that. Um, but then you will want your best people and your workforce working in that collaborative collegiate manner that they're used to um, really in full force to really get the business back up and running as quickly as possible um, into a sort of more normal way of working and having people who are vested in the business and loyal and committed and who also know it inside out, know the work that you do and that you can rely upon is going to be really valuable at that sort of time. So, uh, you know, making people redundant and then thinking well we can rehire people if we need them later down the line isn't necessarily what you're going to want to do so options for avoiding that would be things like part-time working so reducing hours to four days out of five which was probably the most common thing that we saw in 2008-2013 where most law firms implemented those measures and a large number of law firms have already implemented that at this point and for staff in particular who earn under or around about £37,000 a year. The furlough scheme is really beneficial because they will get paid 80% of their normal pay, um, but they won't work. And you know that's really good if you have no work or very little work to give them. You can it, rotate people on furlough. So you might be thinking, but you know I've got half the amount of work and I, ideally I'd put everyone on 50%, but that would mean that everyone got paid 50% of their wage whereas in fact if you put half of them on furlough and keep half of them on full time you could um, effectively get the same amount of work done and rotate them on and off furlough as long as they're on furlough for a minimum of three weeks so options like that to think about and um, you know nine day fortnights also that's quite a good way to think about coming out of this so you might have people on um, sort of three or four days a week during the acute phase and then as things pick up uh, you might not be ready to go up to 100% but you know nine day fortnights are quite a flexible way of um, having people do more hours without the full commitment of 100% of the pay um, flexible working can work in other ways so actual flexi time so so I think that will be something that we will have to see implemented as people become very worried about public transport I think there will be a need for people to travel at different times and to be more flexible about where they work from and what hours they do in a physical office um, and then what we've seen at the moment as well is a growing um, need for people to work some sort of split shift arrangement or just general more flexibility throughout the working day which again in what we do in professional services, we are quite lucky that we can take that more flexible approach because, you know, if we get, if we are able to deliver what our clients need within the timeframes that they need it in, there is no specific reason right now, for example, that we have to be doing that between nine and 12 or between certain times. So a lot of people at the moment are requiring more flexibility because schools are closed. And, you know, that is something that employers should be thinking about in terms of both for partners and for staff is thinking about giving that flexibility where it works and obviously what we would say is keep that under constant review both for partners and for staff and um, so um, that's just a sort of summary of some of the options that we've seen working quite effectively and um, I mean obviously when you come to implement these changes there are a number of things to think about so I'm going to talk in a moment about what you need to think about from an employee perspective before I do that um, I want to first of all just go to um, Zulon to talk about if you need to implement changes to partner partners working arrangements, what do you need to see in that LLP or partnership agreement to enable you to do that? And how might you introduce it now if you don't have it in there already? Um, I First of all, I, I would just mention that things like rights to um, flexible working and things like employment rights in, in respect of those don't apply to LLP members or partners, general partnerships. But some firms do sometimes incorporate statutory employment rights um, and apply them to partners under their partnership agreement. So, of course, you'd need to look very carefully of what, in terms of what rights partners have under your partnership agreements and also what powers the firm has to put people on um, reduced working hours, um, to take a pay cut, to, um, if necessary, to actually um, compulsory retire them if the firm thinks that you know that that partner is no longer um, required in the in the firm. Um, so firms can only really take those actions if if they have the power to do so under their partnership agreement. And if they do have those powers, as mentioned before, 
any any such delegated power powers that are delegated to senior management have to be made um, had to have to be exercised by those decision makers rationally in good faith. Um, so again, having um, you know when when using those powers against a particular partner, um, ensuring that those decision makers are acting in the best interest of the firm in this kind of situation where. Um, you know, the firm is in effectively survival mode in a very serious situation economically. Um, it's probably easier to make that case. Um, but firms, firms should also be ensuring that when they select um, certain groups of partners or certain partners um, against whom these powers will be exercised, that that selection um, criteria is fair and reasonable. Um, and not partners are not targeted for irrational reasons. Um, for example, um, uh, because uh, there, there were you know, senior management had a problem with, that, with a particular partner before this situation even arose. So just be mindful of those issues. In terms of, um, again, I would emphasize the, um, the benefit of consultation even though most partnership agreements don't have the required to consult partners in these types of situations, I would say from a business perspective and um, leadership and trust perspective, it's always very helpful to have consultations in, the, in these kinds of situations with partners so that partners are brought into the process um, and understand why senior leadership is, is wanting to implement these kind of things. Um, and this makes it much easier to get it over the line. Um, if firms are having to resort to the most drastic um, um, power of actually exiting partners in this kind of situations, it's going to be very difficult for partners to find a, a, another job. So taking that into account and perhaps also offering um, partners enhanced terms to leave, um, which is over and above what they would normally receive un under the LLP agreement. So that could be a longer notice period, that could be an exit payment. Um, a waiver of, of their restrictive covenants, um, non-compete covenants, if they have any. Um, so all of those things, I think, firms should be very, uh, first of all, being prepared um, in terms of uh, why they're making the decisions they're wanting to make, um, having in place uh, reasonable terms that they're going to offer the partner um, in order to take uh, the exit option. Um, and of course, if, if if terms can't be agreed mutually, then of course, also being prepared to exercise the right of compulsory retirement that they have under the partnership agreement. Thank you. And I suppose I would just add to that, and this would apply to workers, whether it's LLP members, but also in, in the context of discrimination and harassment, this also applies to LLP members, but it doesn't, um, sorry, LLP members and partners. And when I talk about whistleblowing, that applies to LLP members and not partners in a traditional partnership. But in making these decisions about partners and about staff, make sure that you are not making decisions based on discriminatory criteria or because someone has raised a concern. So ensure that, for example, you are not inadvertently um, terminating someone because their performance is low when actually the reason their performance is low is because they've been unwell due to a disability. Um, make sure that you're not terminating someone whose performance is low because actually if you look back a year it's because they had a year of maternity leave and you might look at it and go well they've got the lowest performance during this particular period but there might be a really obvious reason for that if for example their practice um, moved to someone else during maternity leave. It's not to say that they might not be the person that should be terminated but you just need to make sure you've thought about that and are taking necessary steps to protect against any discrimination. Um, and then the other issue that I think I'll see coming up over the next few weeks and months, particularly when we go back to work, are people raising health and safety concerns. And that is likely to constitute whistleblowing. And people need to be really cautious about then, uh, you know, picking those people for either, um, you know, detrimental treatment. So, you know, reduced pay um, or reduced drawings or exit because they raised health and safety concerns, say about traveling on the tube or coming to an office, because that may be unlawful on the grounds of whistleblowing. And as I say, that applies to LLP members as well as employees. So there are just a sort of number of things to just watch out for. And as Zulon says, you know, paper trail documentation 
is all very important um, when making decisions about both employees and partners, making sure that you can prove that you didn't discriminate, prove that you took into account the relevant factors and ignored irrelevant factors and took the decisions based on rational reasons, not on you know, capricious grudges and things like that. And the other thing I'd finally just add before I ask for a very brief sort of um, 30 second summary from Rob and Zulon of their top tips, is around um, harassment. We obviously came into this still off the back of Me Too, and Me Too in law firms was an enormous part of what a lot of us were dealing with in 2018-19. And you know, some people have said to me, well, there'll be no harassment because no one's going to drinks parties anymore. But a number of people have pointed out that harassment isn't just when partners get drunk at drinks parties, but also it can happen, say cyber harassment or people being much more informal on things like WhatsApp groups and sending jokes and, and sending things like that to colleagues. And people need to be really mindful that that is a risk and that just because we're not physically in the same place and you know that partner can't touch the knee of that associate anymore in a physical context does not mean that that risk has gone and it will not mean that the SRA have forgotten about it. So just be aware of that, make sure your policies are up to date and reinforcing training is not a bad idea at this time, particularly when people may have a little bit more time to engage in training and deliver training. So, um, with that warning story in mind, um, I just want to pass over first of all to Rob to just sort of in 30 seconds, your top tips for firms right now. Okay, well, it really builds on what you and Zulon have said in, in uh, over the last few minutes. And, and, and that is if there was, it's, it's communication, over communication, if, if, if necessary. It's uh, if there was ever a time that it was necessary for law firm leaders to lead their firms, it's right now. And every partner is a leader and every manager is a leader. Everybody that has anybody reporting to them is a leader. It's absolutely crucial. So uh, have the right information that uh, base, base, your, base your leadership on the right information, whether that's information about the market, uh, about what people are saying about when we're going to come out of this thing, uh, what clients are saying and what your own people are saying. And, and that point, what your own people is saying is something that some firms are missing I think there is a fair amount of top-down information going out, uh, but there is not as much as there needs to be, I think, uh, of bottom-up information being asked for. Uh, and and that, don't, that, that means that people are making decisions based on bad information sometimes. It also means that uh, the, the empathy is perceived to be lacking. Uh, just on the, on the topic of four-day weeks, so I'll give you an example. Different firm, different recession. But a four-day week was imposed uh, just by announcement. Uh, that's it. This is what we're going to do. We've done, our, done the sums. We're all going into a four-day week and taking a 20% cut. Well, what that caused is headhunters to be able to pick out some of the junior partners, uh, the most promising partners, and off they went to, to competing firms. And it took many years for the firm to, react to, 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 to be able to, to recover from that. And then the third point is to be decisive. Uh, decisiveness is crucial under these circumstances. If you make a decision, if you can see a particular course of action is necessary, you need to make that decision and stick with it. And that's, yeah. Thank you. And Zulon, very briefly from you, top tips. Um, I would reiterate the point about communication and consultation again. Um, thanks, Rob. Um, and then, of course, understanding what exactly what rights, powers and obligations you have under the partnership agreement is, is absolutely crucial because um, if you don't um, comply with those, then you could be open to challenge by partners. And in this situation, it could be multiple partners. And that, that's not what you want to be um, uh, mired in, in disputes with your partners in, in this kind of situation. Uh, and lastly, I would say in these kind of stress, stress situations, it's always very, um, very apparent where the gaps in your constitutional arrangements are. Um, so being uh, ident identifying those and then trying to plug those gaps as soon as possible. So having a, a, a review of your partnership or LP agreement um, to take into account, um, you know, market changes and, um, you know, good practice is, is a really good idea. Thank you. And I would just add to that, you know, also reviewing policies and procedures. Um, often people have really good suites of policies that apply to employees, but they sort of neglect partners. And we even see still um, firms where harassment policies, for example, wouldn't extend to partners and the ability to investigate doesn't, um, you know, there's not a policy for that vis-a-vis -vis partners. So 
reviewing that aspect of your governance as well would be recommended. Um, with that, um, we're going to wrap up. Um, uh, if anyone has any questions after this, um, I, uh, there's one question that I'm going to reply to offline because it's um, about pensions. So I thought it might just be easier um, to deal with that. But if anyone has any other questions, um, do let us know. Very happy to take questions by email if you want to get in touch with us after this session. Um, as I say, we will be um, following up with a um, podcast, which you will get a link to um, today or tomorrow. So you can re-listen to any parts or so that you can share this if you find it helpful. If there's any other topics that you are grappling with at the moment or that you think would be helpful for um, any of us or our um, experts that we work with to deal with in a session like this, then let us know. We'd be really happy to take suggestions and run more of these sessions. We are going to be trying to do a number of these over the next few weeks and months to keep in touch with everyone during this time. And so that everyone can get used to seeing everyone else's living rooms, which has become a very weird aspect of this lockdown. And that just leaves me to thank you all for giving us the first hour of your Monday morning. We really appreciate that. We appreciate the uh, neglection of Joe Wick's workout and the sunshine outside. I hope you all have a really good week and Monday. And thank you very much to Rob and Zulon for sharing your expertise with us this morning and for joining us and for answering the questions. Thank you all very much.